1: Recorded Wednesday, December 28, 2005. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will be speaking with the incoming president for the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Charles Durbin, Jr., MD, FCCM. Dr. Durbin is a professor of anesthesiology and surgery and medical director for respiratory care at the University of Virginia Health System in Charlottesville, Virginia. Dr. Durbin has been a member of SCCM since 1979 and has served the Society in many ways, including being a member of the Board of Directors of the Anesthesia Section, holding a designated council seat, serving as chairman of the Bylaws Committee and the Editorial Affairs Division, as well as winning a Presidential Citation Award. He is here with us today to talk about his visions and goals for the Society as he prepares to take the helm of the organization. Good afternoon, Charlie. How are you today?
2: I'm very well, Rich. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm I'm really glad we were able to get this all worked out uh, right before our Congress uh, starting next month. I thought we'd begin by hearing a little bit about your personal background, getting to know you as a person, and perhaps telling us what it was like uh, when you joined SCCM uh, back in the late 70s.
2: Sure, Rich. Um, I've been a member for uh, not quite 30 years. It seems that long sometimes, 25 plus. Um, I did my training in anesthesia, uh, but I always had a, an interest in critical care medicine. Back in those days, there really were only a few fellowships in critical care, and uh, I ended up at the University of Pennsylvania for my anesthesia training. There was no critical care fellowship there at that time. I ended up becoming a cardiac anesthesiologist, and uh, my first and my, my, the same job I still hold is at the University of Virginia. When I arrived at the university, the chairman, current chairman, uh, Dr. Epstein, was in the process of recruiting a, a critical care group to provide the first intensivist driven ICU, in, actually, in the state of Virginia. John Hoyt, a former president of the uh, SCCM, had been recruited to start that program. I was the third person recruited to his team. Because of my interest in critical care over the years and the fact that I'd done a couple of extra years of internal medicine along with my training in anesthesia, uh, it looked like I I could be an intensivist uh, out of the box, so to speak. Uh, As I said, there really weren't a lot of uh, training programs that even offered fellowships. There were no certification exams for physicians in critical care, so it really was a a, a wide-open time for those who had this interest. John Hoyt had done some of his training at Pittsburgh and of course knew Aki Grenvik, Peter Saffer, and some of the, the real grandfathers, the fathers of, of our specialty, and was influenced by their thought processes. Um, I found myself grateful to be invited to become a member of that team. And my, my career really developed from that point on.
1: Um, And so you've sort of watched the field develop some of the relationships between critical care and anesthesia, critical care and surgery, critical care and internal medicine. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what it was like living through that or watching that all happen?
2: Since I was a new kid on the block, um, I I didn't have as uh, much fire in the belly, as some of our members would say, toward critical care training. When I first started, I was more concerned about my own lack of experience and uh, background, but John Hoyt certainly uh, was a strong advocate for critical care as its own discipline. John's background was in uh, anesthesia as well uh, as my own, but in fact he saw himself as an intensivist who did anesthesia as opposed to the other way around. Uh the the four boards uh had agreed to one exam for critical care. This was really in the middle 80s, maybe 81, 82. Aki Grenvik was a primary mover in that process. Uh, you may recall, Rich, uh, or have read that uh, uh, critical care and our society, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, was really made up of equal parts of anesthesia-trained folks, internal medicine, a few surgeons, and a few pediatricians. Uh, it really was an anesthesia-primarily-based group because most of the founders had had their training in Europe where anesthesia really was the basis for critical care. Critical care grew out of post-anesthesia recovery rooms in Europe, as well as in the United States, and the the natural training course and the skills felt necessary were often acquired from anesthesia training programs. In the United States, it's been a little different. I think there's been more growth in internal medicine influence in critical care over the, the last 25 years. But be that as it may, there was an agreement between internal medicine, anesthesia, surgery, and pediatrics to have a common exam, although it would be slightly different for the pediatric group. The uh, awarding of a certificate of critical care would still be left to the primary board, but all, all four boards had agreed in principle and in practice to a common exam. Unfortunately, that process of agreement fell apart basically at the 11th hour, despite many people's efforts to try to maintain a single exam. And uh, internal medicine withdrew, uh, followed by anesthesia surgery and pediatrics. The American College of Medical Subspecialties immediately granted each of the four boards the right to offer their own exam in critical care and probably more importantly, more significantly, uh, made it difficult, if not impossible, for any other boards to offer uh, a sub Specialty in critical care medicine. We're living with some of the consequences of that decision even today.
1: So there was a plan, though. Initially, I, I had not actually heard that there was a plan to have one one common exam initially.
2: Yeah, in fact, there were two or three years of discussion, negotiation, and a final agreement that that would in fact occur. The breakdown was over. What would the requirements for the individuals to be able to sit that exam be? And internal medicine wanted a two year training program. Uh, Anesthesia wanted one, but they agreed that if their graduates did significantly poorer on the exam, percentage-wise, they would expand the fellowship to two years. Uh, Surgery basically could go either way. And, of course, pediatrics has always had its own independent process. Their fellowship in pediatrics actually ended up being a three- or a four-year program, as opposed to pediatric anesthesia, which was another route to critical care, which was simply a one-year additional training after anesthesia uh, training.
1: And this was before it had become so common on the internal medicine side of things with the combined pulmonary critical care fellowships that you see today? Yeah,
2: actually, that was a late decision and occurred after the internal medicine board exam was actually uh, established. Uh, pulmonary critical care, which changed its name about 85, 86, about the time the first exams were there, saw the writing on the wall and basically usurped most of the uh, uh, training uh Uh, and and evaluation processes from the other subspecialties. At at that point, uh, backgrounds in cardiology, renal, even gastroenterology could could apply for examination uh, for the subspecialty board. Surgery is going through a similar change today. Trauma in critical care is becoming the predominant route for critical care certification, as opposed to general surgery or thoracic surgery or vascular surgery, which were prominent players back in the mid-90s.
1: Well, I guess um, we were going to discuss this more later, and I hope you don't mind, but, but I'd like to talk about that a little bit more now. Uh, you know, I've, I've only been in the field for a few years, but what is your opinion, having seen all this come and, and I guess, go, uh, and again, this is related to a, a lecture that I went to last year, year's uh, SCCM Dr. Fink and Dr. Mathay were discussing whether or not uh, there's a, there should be a trend to start to get training right out of medical school to start to become an intensivist. Um, do you have opinions about this kind of thing?
2: Um, well, I, I I don't have. I, I certainly have watched. Uh, the process over a, a period of time, uh, I, I have mixed feelings. Uh, you may be aware that our uh, there is a move afoot to actually have a common exam again, surgery and anesthesia, for instance will probably end up with common questions, and uh, one of of the interesting things is that surgeons and anesthesiologists may train the same unit, take the same, a very similar exam, and end up having different answers counted as correct. That just (laughs) didn't make much sense to the parties involved. Often the same people were writing questions for both exams. So I think surgery and anesthesia, because they tend to use the same Teaching material will probably end up having a similar exam, uh, the same exam uh, uh, in in the the very near future. In internal medicine, uh, there were there were several routes to critical care. One was a two-year straight out of uh, 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 medicine fellowship, and the majority of members back in the you know 90s, early 90s, were from that route. And then and then uh, pulmonary critical care became the other. M- logical route, and in fact, the majority of graduates now with critical care internal medicine boards are pulmonary critical care. The advantages of one versus the other, we just recently did a survey of our membership to find out what their opinions of how critical care training should be approached. One European model, actually the Spanish model, has critical care as a primary out-of-medical school uh, training program with no broad uh, exposure to any other specialty. Uh, It's a six-year program, so it's maybe a little more in-depth than our typical two- to four-year fellowships might be or four-year training programs might be. But be that as it may, um, the Europeans uh, in other countries have not adopted that model uh, wholeheartedly, believing that a broader base of of exposure to general medical principles uh, and other specialties were important. Our membership was surveyed on what they thought, and of course, most of our members are not straight critical care trained, so they may not have the primary exposure to that. But they really were much 90% in favor of their primary specialty and then having a subspecialty for two main reasons. One, you can't really do critical care intensively full-time. You need a break. You need to be able to do something else. And what you do on your break would be your primary specialty. Um, in most people's cases. And they find that they're better as an intensivist when they have another job to do, and they're better in that other job when they have critical care to do. And that the two, whether it's surgery, pulmonary, or anesthesia, seem to make the, the potential uh, practice model more palatable and ultimately probably better for the patient because they bring in views from both of those areas. My bias is that critical care really benefits from having diverse input uh, at, a, at a physician level for sure and certainly at a caregiver level in general. We, we really know that uh, having multiple specialists, be they nurses, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, uh, and different physician specialists, uh, brings enough new views to the patient care that a better outcome uh, is achieved than if one person or one specialty actually controls all of the decisions.
1: Right, I know from my personal experience my uh, my fellowship was had a heavy input by anesthesia and that was fascinating for me as an internist and my current job it's a surgeon and myself as an internist working in a surgical ICU and again we seem to we bring different things to the table. Both of both perspectives seem to help the patient as as you pointed out.
2: And, and that's my belief as well and I think critical care will suffer if any of the groups is ultimately left out um, of the process. But One can't tell the future. I'm quite worried about anesthesia input in the future. Uh, We have trained so few fellows in my lifetime uh, nationally that uh, the influence is is diminishing just simply by lack of numbers, Uh, and I think that's ultimately a loss for critical care.
1: One of the other questions that I had reading about your your background is that you've been heavily involved in respiratory care, and I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about how you may have become involved with that and, and maybe some personal stories about your interest in that field.
2: Sure. Um, one of the things John Hoyt recognized when uh, he came to Virginia was that uh, strong s- support from non physicians was essential for good critical care. So he basically appointed me as medical director of the respiratory care department. Up until that point, there essentially was a non active medical director. Um, And what that meant was that I would interact on a daily basis or at least weekly basis with the therapist in general and learn from them but also bring their uh, skill levels and their their philosophy up to the level that we considered uh, appropriate for a critical care team. What that really meant was letting them express themselves during rounds in a positive way, teaching them how to do that, um, and then encouraging them to grow professionally within their own organization. Um, I've been fortunate in that I I was taught by some very good therapists of of what respiratory care was capable of doing, both as individuals and as a profession. Um, And um, I got involved in their national society, the American Association of Respiratory Care, Uh, Became uh, an editor on their journal, or I guess a sub-editor, associate editor, and have had a a, a career-long relationship with therapists in particular.
1: And it it seems like one of the reasons that that members of the critical care community go into critical care is that as respiratory therapists and critical care nursing staff get good at their job, you can develop, you can really contribute in a significant way to the team and develop significant uh, independence uh, in that fashion.
2: One of the interesting things that has happened in in respiratory care is the recognition that standardization of care, decision trees, and algorithms really do promote quality care. That was an idea that came about almost 20 years ago, has been slow to get implemented throughout uh, the respiratory care environment, but really is the same approach that we're now trying to do in the ICU for all of our decisions, um, allowing them to meet certain standards and making decision-making more algorithmic than independent. Um, I think we were doing that at the bedside uh, on rounds even 20 years ago by involving the other specialists, uh, having their point of view about their aspect of care uh, voiced and reinforcing each other basically on the standards of care. Uh, But the therapists really have taken it to the extreme. And respiratory care protocols are, in fact, their mantra as a national organization.
1: This sort of segues actually quite nicely into one of the other areas that I wanted to ask your opinion on as the leader of our organization is that precise point that there have been recent important results from large randomized trials, that there is becoming a field of evidence-based critical care and yet, it appears from you know what I've read in the literature is making that happen is tough. And just before I, I get to the question, it seems that um, uh, giving physicians their sense of being physicians and yet having them integrate uh, guidelines into it successfully is is very very tough. If that's if that's making any sense, that a lot of physicians feel that they can make decisions, as you said, at the bedside. Better than a protocol, and it's it's tough when you get results like results from the ARDSnet, and yet they still can't be implemented. Um, and I and I was thinking thinking a lot about this before I I started the interview. You know, if if this were in in oncology, for example, and there was a new uh, oncology drug that was as successful as what the results of the ARDSnet appeared to be, I, I can't imagine that there would be so much. Controversy in quickly implementing that, and maybe this is a controversial statement. But but why do you think this has been so hard to do in critical care? And what is if you looked into the crystal ball, where would you see us five years from now making progress in this area?
2: Yeah, I, I think uh, that that's been a, an interest of mine as well, Rich. So we share that in common. Um, I don't have a I don't have a perfect answer to you. Um, I will I will say that. Um, evidence-based medicine in critical care really doesn't anywhere come close to the quality of evidence, for instance, in cardiology. Um, if you want to look at where most advances have been made and where the most number of patients in studies have been looked at, it's really in the cardiology literature. And when national studies look at whether cardiologists are even giving aspirin after an MI, they find surprisingly poor compliance there, too. So I, I don't want to incriminate uh critical care physicians as being the bad apple. In fact, I think medical systems and medical care in general has difficulty with changes. And even when, beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, simple interventions uh, make big outcome differences, we seem to not be able to get them to happen very well. Part of that, I think, is medicine traditionally uh, is slow and reluctant to make changes That's a good and a bad thing. The good thing is that we don't jump on bandwagons too soon. The bad thing is that we don't ever jump on bandwagons, it seems like, Uh, and we uh, miss uh, opportunities to uh, actually help our patients in a systematic way. I think patients expect us to behave as individuals, so there's a reinforcement between the physician and the patient and his family as well, expecting individual decisions to be made uh, rather than rote decisions. um, algorithmic, even if they're proven decisions. Um, I think that what we have to learn is how can we support those changes, how can we um, allow them to happen, but yet still uh, allow physicians to feel and patients to feel that it's an individual decision. Certainly, the evidence in critical care is a lot less strong than in some other areas. Cancer is, is one example you gave, um, and I mentioned cardiac, uh, the cardiology uh, literature, arrhythmia treatment, et cetera, angina treatment, and post-MI, but there are going to be changes that come down the pike all the time, and it's almost impossible for any individual to actually be able to decide which would be right for this patient today. Um, so I think algorithmic approaches, especially to the things we do know make a difference uh, is important. Um, in my own my own case, one of one of the nice things about still being in a minority, as you know, probably 75% of ICUs are not um, run or, or there are no intensivists rounding on a regular basis. So only 25% of ICUs in the country have the intensivist model uh, or some variant of it. Uh, And one of the nice things about that is that I can reinforce on my rounds or with my nurse or with my outcomes manager those algorithms which we know are appropriate. In fact, it took a long time to get the therapists advocating for low tidal volume ventilation. Um, Even though we had the data, we talked about it, we presented it to conferences, it took a long time for it to be adopted. Now it's almost impossible to get anybody in my institution ventilated with anything but low tidal volume, even when it makes no sense. Um, So uh, it's a two-edged sword. You can get people convinced those are the right things to do, but you know that, in fact, it won't apply to every patient. That's the autonomy, if you will, of the individual caregiver. What I think has helped most is to have reports of how frequently um, patients should receive a particular therapy and don't, uh, or do if you want to look at it in a positive sense, and have that information fed back to the caregivers. We've added an outcomes manager to our care team, and that's been the biggest help getting the simple things we all know are the, the right thing to do done on every patient. DVT prophylaxis, elevation of the head of the bed to prevent uh, aspiration, and ventilator-associated pneumonia, screening properly for changes in x-rays, and then uh, following up with cultures. All the things we know, everybody knows is, is the right thing to do, but we sometimes get off the mark and forget them. But now we have, on a daily basis, someone following up after us, telling us, you know what, you forgot to do it in this patient, and is there a reason you didn't? It wasn't that they told us we have to do a particular aspect of care, but they remind us, this wasn't an oversight, was it? You really did mean to not anticoagulate this patient. And, of course, if we have a good answer, then we can count that as a success, and if we don't, we can say, oops, you're right, thanks for catching it, and now it's fixed. Can you tell me
1: more, uh, tell me again, it's called an outcomes manager? Yeah, it's
2: it's a senior nurse who... Who works uh, basically five or six days a week to kind of round with us, and she covers more than one unit, uh, so it's not just my ICU, but she'll spend a couple hours with me each day going around and reminding us about where we've been successful at meeting standards of care and where we haven't and asking for justification of why we haven't, collecting that data and then reporting it back to us so we know how well we're doing. Um, and I think that's improved our compliance with what we want to do. You know, we've decided we want to do these things, but yet we've been unable to actually systematically and successfully implement them. And this one individual who's really working basically part-time for us um, has, by reminding us on a daily basis and in a nice way uh, and with data to support uh, what she says, not to change practice, but to do the practice we say is correct, that we're, being, we're becoming successful. Um, It was hard to get the hospital to agree to this because it's a non-clinical person, in a sense. They're not contributing to treating more patients. But in fact, we've been able to show shortened length of stay with them, uh, all the things we knew we could do if we could just implement protocols, just implement what we know works. So, that's been the biggest change uh, over the last couple of years in my unit that's actually uh, helped us do what we've been trying to do all along.
1: Well, and uh, this is one of the problems I've been running into with my podcast is I'll find something like this that I could talk to you about for like three hours or a day, and uh, I'm going to try and keep it somewhat structured. But that's absolutely fascinating. and, And it's absolutely been exciting for me to see how different units try and solve these same problems, whether it's with checklists or assigning somebody or whether it turns out to be a senior pharmacist, something like that, doing those kinds of issues. In many units, it falls, I mean, when I'm on my rounds, I try and do my best to do those exact same things as we all do. But having somebody separate from the team who's both, I guess, bringing back the big picture of the unit and then helping at the micro level and the individual patient really helps things, I guess.
2: Right, and and we've gotten an academic slant on it by reporting the data and using it as quality improvement, but also reporting it to our colleagues in other institutions of a way to approach the issue. So you can get satisfaction for someone at that high level who's doing what you might consider a menial task, reminding us to order heparin sub-Q everybody, every day on on people who, who need it. Uh, I work in a neurointensive care unit, so the discussion of whether patients should get anticoagulation or not really took several years to, to iron out with the, with the neurosurgeons. It's an open... Unit in that the patient remains on the neurosurgical or neurologist service. So uh, active involvement really only occurs with negotiation rather than by fiat. We finally reached the point where every patient ha- has to receive an anticoagulant unless the surgeon absolutely forbids it. Uh, so it's an active part, uh, it's an active decision on the surgeon's part rather than an active decision on our part now. Um, they have to say no actively rather than uh, agree to let a, letting us do it. And we're now about 98% successful in uh, uh, starting sub-Q heparin right after surgery.
1: I thought we'd... Um conclude uh, the, the interview by letting you talk a little bit about two areas. One is, I know one of your goals is to increase the number of members of SECM who are involved in the creative community. And maybe if you could talk a little bit about that, and perhaps some of your other goals uh, or your vision for what the society should be heading towards in the next uh, next year or so.
2: Yeah, there are really two areas that I'm, I'm particularly interested in. I, I think it's nice being president but uh, don't expect too much if you ever reach this level. There's an awful lot of people who contribute to the success of the society, and really my job is to uh, allow that success to occur rather than to create it myself. And that's been kind of a shift for someone who's used to being an intensivist and actually influencing care uh, on my own decisions. Um, The creative community is what we call really the people who volunteer to work for this society. That's our major resource. We often think of money as being the resource, uh, but it's really the time and the efforts of our volunteers. Uh, We have about 600 people who are currently active on committees, task forces within the college, and so forth, and and contribute really the the major products come from this group within our organization. it's a two-way street. Uh, from my own experience, I, I spent many years at the level of uh, task force committees, uh, um, section work, and so forth. And I, I continue to do that because, for me, that's very satisfying work. It actually, You actually see the tangible outcome. Uh, once you get into the leadership role, it's a little less tangible. It's a little more esoteric. Um, that's maybe not as satisfying on a daily basis. It's essential, but it's not as satisfying. So it's a two-edged if you will. Membership is important for the society, but membership in the creative community is also helpful to the individual. It it allows a creative output um, and and good feelings. We have an incredibly supportive uh, and uh, collaborative group of individuals. Uh, Most of us are are used to the the team model, so participating as part of a team is the way we're used to living, and uh, I think that is one of the reasons we're so productive as an organization. Um, So my goal is to allow that opportunity to uh, be expanded. That'll help individuals and it'll also help our society. And I I would encourage anyone who has an interest in any area or just wants to get involved um, to do so. If you ask me to be on a committee, I'll make sure you get either on that one or one similar to it. Um, And if you don't know what the committees do, you can look it up on the website and kind of get an overview. Uh, To some extent, um, individuals do control, i.e., the chairman controls what might happen on the committee so what's printed and what actually happens may be a little bit different uh, so don't be too disappointed if it isn't exactly what you thought it would be but use it as an opportunity um, I'll consider myself successful if I uh, if we reach 660 uh, members of the com- uh, creative community by the time I relinquish the, the reins the other area that is important to me really is um, we've touched on it already it's the, the way we're encouraging people to make changes in their own in- environment is to to uh, learn it, do it, measure it, and improve it. It's the improvement cycle that's uh, out there in various forms. We've taken one of ours, learn it, deliver it, measure it, and improve it as our, our mantra for getting the task done. Because we recognize that we teach, we have a incredible amount of information, but we don't really know whether patients are benefiting from it, that information at the bedside. Um, and this is our route for getting it out there. What I would like to see happen this next 12 months and probably start and then continue is for us to actually measure our success. So we, we have been delivering it. Uh, now it's time for us to measure it at the patient bedside level or some variant thereof. And then if our educational processes are not successful at making changes that matter, then we need to reinvent how we do our educational processes. For the past couple of years, we've talked about looking at teaching bundles as a way to, um, or teaching silos as a way to include everything from the content to how to to make changes, to how to measure changes, and then how to make make improvements in the processes. Uh, What we haven't done yet is create a toolkit, some some, uh, ready-made technical ways, techniques for uh, our members to show and to uh, show what they've done and to, in fact, improve it. And that's my goal, is to actually get us thinking in terms of every educational product should have a bedside application and a way to measure the impact there, and then uh, we should be collecting that data as an institution and as an organization and using that to improve our education.
1: We've been speaking today with Dr. Charles Durbin, a professor of anesthesiology and surgery and next year's president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: You're quite welcome, Rich.
1: This concludes our podcast, recorded Wednesday, December 28, 2005. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community.
0: Registration is open for SCCM's 35th Critical Care Congress. Please note the date and location change to January 7th through 11th, 2006 at the San Francisco-Mascone West Convention Center. Learn innovative treatments in critical care, as well as fundamental business practices to improve your ICU environment, all developed by a multi-professional team of critical care experts. Register today by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org. Don't miss out on this unsurpassed educational opportunity in beautiful San Francisco, California.